1: At our core, everything we do is meant to solve human problems. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Erin Hagen. Erin is the CEO and founder of Entrepreneurial Technologies. In 2019, she released Soul Uprising, It's Never Just Business, a book that encourages entrepreneurs and business leaders to trust their purpose and embrace impact as the true measure of success. Erin and I talk about her journey as a technologist, entrepreneur, and author. Starting out in creative writing at Iowa, Erin went on to become a developer, business owner, and community leader. Our discussion explored concepts of trust, strong brands, as well as stereotypes that hinder women in technology and the need for teams to embrace diversity. Erin shares her advice on when and how to improve oneself. It was an honor having Erin join me on the show. I thank her for her time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Erin, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, for me and our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Absolutely. I'm a lifelong Iowan, and I grew up in Ames and jumped ship and went to school at the University of Iowa. And uh, after that, I decided that I wanted to be in technology. And so I uh, went to West Des Moines and worked for a software company. And then on the cusp of the Great Recession, I had the brilliant idea to start my own company. And uh, I've been doing that ever since, 13 years now.
1: Great. And how's that treating you?
0: You know, um, I I look back and I wouldn't have it any other way. I certainly had no idea where the journey was going to lead when I started it and wasn't nearly as terrified as I should have been, but uh, I I certainly wouldn't have it any other way.
1: Oh, that's great. I want to uh, talk a little bit. So backing up, you said you went to the University of Iowa, and my understanding is you initially wanted to be uh, a creative writer before you became a technologist. Can you tell me a little bit about that path?
0: Yeah, I was, uh, I was very excited to go into uh, creative writing and specifically I wanted to be at the writer's workshop. Um, you know, obviously a very renowned program. And that was, I think part of the deal that got my, uh, my Ames parents to let me go to the University of Iowa in the first place. But uh, I took my first creative writing class my freshman year in college and uh, our TA, was uh, in the writer's workshop itself. So it was very exciting to, you know, to be speaking with him and be learning from him. And we turned our first papers in and I remember he came back to class the next class period with a big stack of papers, which students probably don't have stacks of papers anymore. It's all electronic, but we had stacks of papers. And so he has this big stack of papers and he throws it all across the room. And he says, this is bleep. It's all bleep. Maybe some of it's bleep we can work with, but I don't think so And storms out, so. That was my introduction to what it's like to be in a serious creative writing program. Uh, and I, I don't think I was prepared for that at that point in time, but, uh, definitely got me thinking about what I might want to do. That was a little less uh, aggressive than (laughs) creative writing and, uh, wound up with a career in technology.
1: So that, and, uh, I just want to double check was, that was your first semester that you had that creative writing class
0: second semester freshman year yeah
1: okay so it are you you just the the inner monologue are you just asking yourself what have I done is this were you questioning the choices there
0: I absolutely was you know I was this sunny little 19 year old from Ames Iowa who hadn't seen much of the world um you know and, and like to write stories about my grandma and and that kind of thing and um you know, I, I think in retrospect, um, I'm glad that I didn't become a writer at that point because I, I think that I probably lacked the perspective to be able to delve into uh, complex topics like that, which I think was what he was getting at in the first place. But, uh, but yeah, it, my inner monologue was like, oh, this is very unpleasant. This is <laughs> there's a lot of conflict here. People are yelling at me. I don't like this.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, thank you I one uh, of your story reminds me of a a professor that I had that was very nice, very generous and uh, I remember this professor uh, talking about his mentor and and how nice that mentor was, but described academia kind of in other other cycles of uh, kind of violence or kind of (laughs) bad behavior, but it's that these academic cycles is like those that were abused, abuse. And, you know, like I want, like at times I I wonder what somebody might have gone through that they're, that's how they're going to treat freshmen that are just coming into a program and, and the difference that we do see in mentors that are, are positive or engaging and trying to work with what we have but I want to, I do want to talk about you as an entrepreneur and a technologist, but I want to jump from uh, that episode that you had at the University of Iowa to you becoming an author. And if you don't mind talking about uh, your book, Soul Uprising, and what was the inspiration there?
0: Yeah. um, So we, we went through a really tough year as a business, you know, and and I don't know that there are a lot of easy years in business, but we went through one that was uh, particularly challenging. And uh, around that time, there, there was just a lot of attention being given to voices in the business space who were telling you that it's all about 100X returns and you know it's, it's all money driven and we have to be focused on these giant scalable problems and you know, becoming the next multi-billion dollar idea and all of that. And I think that there's absolutely a place for that. But I also looked around at all of these, you know, entrepreneurs that I knew who were in it for something other than 100x returns. And I thought, you know, who's speaking to these people? Who's, who's the voice for these people who feel that there's supposed to be more to this than that? Um, and we had this really tough year and, and this year in which, you know, frankly, the, the money wasn't coming in. The, the 100x returns were not there. You know, 10x returns weren't there two right. X returns weren't there,
1: <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> you know, it was, it was a very rough year and it actually became kind of a, a rallying point, I think for us as an organization to say, why is it that we're really doing this? Cause we're still here. We're, we're having a bad year. We're not making good money. And we're still here, you know, so. What is it that truly makes it worth it at the end of the day? And Oh, by the way, what are some things we can do to make this a sustainable organization so that we are still around in, in another, 10 or 15 years. So,
1: And if you don't mind sharing some of the uh, insights that you had as, uh, again, that maybe, maybe life is a little bit more than 10x or 100x return or, or scalability or being a technology unicorn. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of those insights?
0: Yeah, um, you know, I think that at our core, everything we do is meant to solve human problems. And, and not solve human problems for ego's sake, but solve human problems for the sake of making people's lives better. And that's not a new idea. That's what essentially all business has been doing since the beginning of time, right? And you know, with technology, we just have a chance to do it on a little bit larger scale with a smaller investment. And if that's not what gets you fired up in the morning, then you're probably, I would say, in the wrong career. Um, and and certainly anytime we have been approached for something where um, for whatever reason we couldn't get behind solving the problem and it was going to be revenue only um, most of the time we've said no but in the in the times we haven't that that's been a mistake you know you, you can't just be in it for the money um, there's too much blood sweat and tears that goes into it uh, you just have to be dedicated to the problem and and I think that sometimes we we don't want to believe that that's enough you know we 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 feel like that's cheesy or childish or trite or or whatever. Um, but fulfillment is a real thing. It's a really important thing. And, and there's gotta be something that keeps you coming back for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years to keep solving those problems.
1: Yeah, thank you. I know from my own experience, uh, you know, working kind of in the, for lack of better terms, management consulting space, uh, the projects that uh, weren't just about return and money there, there was, they were so much more rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the ones that came down to, you know, we, we took this gig, we need it because we, right. We need the money. Uh, and those were probably the most frustrating. Uh, and, and those, those are the ones too, where you, you, you probably look back and even though you took it for the money, there was, there was so little margin on those because it was, those tend to be those relationships where they, they take so much extra time, whether that's, from a project perspective right like kind of more of the cya activity that okay let me copy everybody let's show that we're making progress mm-hmm. versus kind of high trust I, there there's a lot of different elements in there but I, I do know uh what you're saying resonates with me from also my my consulting journey
0: yeah um I, the original title of the book was supposed to be the trust code and my editor talked me out of it as editors do um but a good share of the book is devoted to talking about trust in business and, and how we build it and how important it is. And, and I think you really hit the nail on the head with that. You know the, It's the trust component. We did a survey of our team members a few years back. We were trying to figure out who our ideal client was. And so we, we talked to them about which projects they liked the best and which ones they found the most fulfilling. And I was curious. I, I didn't know how people would evaluate which ones they enjoyed working on the most but it came down to it was the projects where we had that really strong trust relationship with the client and you know they were relying on us to bring expertise and, and trusted us enough to give us a little leeway in in doing that and coming back to them with the best possible answer
1: oh that's that's great and uh uh listeners can't see this but i am i'm smiling uh Later this afternoon, I have uh, a lecture for the leading innovation class. And one of the topics that I have in there is how organizations move at the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. And when you start to dissect that, the amount of time it takes, if it is low trust, like again, the, the amount of, uh, you know, I'll go back to like CYA emails or uh, the amount of things that you're doing because there isn't trust, whether that's trust in an individual or right, or trust in the relationship, but uh, I really do. I really appreciate you saying that because the the themes that you're talking about in Soul Uprising do feel so much, like you know, about trust and healthy relationships. So it, it's uh, it's just interesting to hear that that was your initial working title.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's just so critical, and I think that starting a business um, on the cusp of the Great Recession sort of brought that home because, uh, you know, when people are under financial stress, it's it's definitely, I would say the worst behavior I've seen out of, out of people in business. And in some yeah. cases, some very inspiring behavior, but, um, you know, really put a lot of people in a pressure cooker and just made it clear how critical trust is and, and what happens when it breaks down.
1: And when you're talking about uh, the exercise you went through with your with your team members about kind sort of who's the ideal client or what those attributes might be, I just wanted to share with you that I I recently had a conversation with A.J. Meyer. He was a co-creator of a company called Go Kart Labs, and now they were acquired by uh, West Monroe Consulting. But on the innovation side, he was also talking about impact, right? And so, you know, the that ideal client is. You know there's good margin right from a business perspective but there there is high impact or meaningful work that's going on for everybody that's involved that just makes makes that special and if you're just doing it for dollars, it usually doesn't it it usually doesn't pay off in the long run I guess is is kind of my take
0: yeah the the calorie burn always ends up being so high on those projects you know right. that it might seem good going into it and you look back and go that wasn't worth it.
1: And a lot of what you have in Soul Uprising, too, is uh, to me, there are also parallels to strong brands and strong brand relationships and authenticity. What what advice do you have for folks about being uh, being their authentic selves or bringing their authentic self to their work?
0: Yeah, you know, this is it's such a hard thing for all of us, because I think a lot of us, uh, you know, we have some picture in our mind of of what the ideal entrepreneur is. And for many of us, it's not us for whatever reason. You know, we think it needs to be somebody of a different gender, a different race, a different age, you know, a different uh, resume, whatever the the characteristics we've put in place of this ideal entrepreneur are. And I know at the beginning of my business, I I spent so much time trying to look like the ideal entrepreneur. And I think, you know, I think there was an element of it that was being conscious of the fact that, you know, people weren't expecting a 27-year-old woman to be, you know, the the lead on a tech company. Uh, but I think some of it was just general societal stuff. And even to the point that um, our our brand, our cheap brand color was navy blue. There's absolutely wrong with nothing wrong with navy blue. I'm wearing navy blue today. But it's it certainly like, it's not one of my favorites and it's nothing I would pick from a branding perspective for a variety of reasons, but it's what I thought I should pick, right? It's, it's what I thought a trustworthy brand looked like and I was trying to emulate that. And what's interesting is that I spent so much time hiding all of these, what I considered to be hippy-dippy tendencies that I had toward, you know, believing in fulfillment and doing the right thing and all of that. And as soon as I started letting that out, all of these, what I thought were very conservative, very stoic business figures that we worked with, that I was, you know, so afraid of finding out about my secret of of these attitudes I had. They were so supportive, you know, they were looking for it too. And so I think people really respond to that. And uh, and those are the people that you want are the ones that respond to who you are authentically.
1: Ab- absolutely right. Yeah. Just from a from a brand perspective, like you said, it. It is a good sort system too. Is like if, if what you're doing doesn't necessarily resonate, those probably aren't the clients you're t- you're going to want to win, right? Mm-hmm. And and for those that it does speak to, it probably accelerates that uh, that positive communication and, and trust elements.
0: Right, right.
1: So if you don't mind, we'll back up a little bit. Then uh, we so we, you're you're at Iowa and creative writing. And then we we jumped ahead and talked about uh, you being a, an entrepreneur and running a tech company. Can you can you fill in the gap for me a little bit on what that how you became a technologist?
0: Sure. Um, well, I was somewhere after my freshman year. I was kind of uh, reeling and trying to figure out my career path now that my uh, dreams of being a a novelist were dashed, and I got offered an internship at uh, my cousin's husband's. Software company in West Des Moines, and they were going to pay me something astronomical, like $11 an hour, and so I was totally in. Had no idea what I'd be doing, but I was in, and you know, I was I was doing intern things. it was getting people lunch and proofreading things, and you know, answering phones and all of that kind of stuff. And prior to that, if you would have asked me what programmers did, I would have probably described them sitting in a basement you know, in cubicles typing ones and zeros on a green screen, right? Um, but I got to see what these people actually did and it was really group problem solving and a small group of, I think at the time 19 people in West Des Moines were really able to solve some, some pretty impressive large scale problems. And so that got me interested and switched my major and ended up working for that company six years full time after college and to like, got cocky and thought I could do it better myself and went out on my own.
1: You picked that navy blue color, had the business cards (laughs) printed, and you are ready to roll.
0: I was ready to go. Vista (laughs) print had me covered.
1: (laughs) So uh, what major did you switch to?
0: Um, Economics and MIS.
1: Oh, right on, right on. And uh, your summers between then and graduating, did you return as an intern to the same company?
0: Mm -hmm. The next summer, I was a programming intern, so I crammed pretty hard to get to the point where I could actually uh, write some code. Um, and that company wrote in a different language than what we were learning at Iowa. So I had to learn that, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I've always liked problem solving. And so the code itself was interesting at that point because it was so fresh. And um, Just the idea of, you know, it's, it's kind of a wide open space and you can build anything was really exciting to me.
1: Thanks. Uh, Digging into on what you, you said earlier, too, about uh, solving human problems, Uh, right, because I absolutely agree with that from a, you know, uh, from a design side, sometimes I describe what I do as human-centered design, and then other designers, sometimes will mock that, right, that it isn't at all human-centered, but sometimes I, I, I believe that we have to just be explicit about that. That that putting the human at the center and and understanding their goals and needs. Uh, and in my career too, where I've seen technology is a great tool, a wonderful enabler. But if it if it's pointed in the wrong direction, sometimes i you you can basically accelerate your screw ups. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when it gets misapplied, it becomes interesting. But what was your insight on the? the need for both business and technology to be kind of the solving human problems.
0: So I, I think I've always inherently felt that, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if you get into the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram two, which is the helper. So, uh, you know, that's my, that's my mentality to start with. And I think I always recognized that my brain worked a little bit differently than a lot of programmers in that I was I was focused on how is this gonna help that person, not it's really neat what all these ones and zeros can do. And and both, both of those are needed, one's not better than the other. You need the people who wanna push the limits of the technology just to push the limits of the technology because that advances mm-hmm. a lot of things for us. So I wanna make it clear I'm not uh, knocking that at all, but when it came to solving problems, um, I I had this in- interesting juxtaposition because I had my my real job where I was working on these large government projects and didn't have much control over what was happening. They were enormous, and you know just came in and typed as fast as I could all day every day and kind of went home. <laughs> um, and then I, I did a side project for a local small business and got to talk to them pretty extensively about uh, their billing process, which might seem like a very dry topic, but uh, worked on something for that with them. And it was incredibly gratifying to see the impact that this had on real people. It, you know, billing, billing is not sexy, but <laughs> you know, working on this with real people and getting to see that, that I could build something that actually helped them. I mean, that, that was an amazing feeling. And, and I think that was a lot of what motivated me to start my own business.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, and thinking of billing, I know from a a brand and experience perspective, I've, I've always thought that that's a super rich area to, to either positively drive or negatively drive the experience, right. And, Mm -hmm. and the, the brand feeling that somebody has about your organization, because uh, in billing or especially in the medical field, when you see statements but some of them are like you know just an explanation of benefits this is not a bill or this is a bill and it's hard to make heads or tails of what is really going on and you know how, how can you make that consumable for for the customer rather than it, it does make sense to everybody inside the organization but they live and breathe it every day and right. so i could see where we a billing project would be really rich with high potential to to be the helper
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes those situations where, um, you know, frankly, there's a very low bar. (laughs) There's also uh, a lot of opportunity, you know, to to make it better.
1: And one of the things you mentioned, too, from your perspective, uh, both from programming and coding and then seeing the human side of things, uh, uh, one design team that I I built, uh, I would say that maybe my my best designer uh, grew up as a programmer and she she was always in she said the big question she had was when she would get stuck on you know there's different ways that you could code like what are, what are we going to do because there's multiple ways to solve this problem and she always wanted to better understand the context in which the user would be using this or where is this going to work so kind of a in some ways a natural kind of curiosity uh, about helping somebody but i i really appreciate that on the on the design and tech side when when you do have people that can appreciate and see kind of multiple sides of this what can the technology do what are ways that we can extend it right? and and be creative with that what are what are ways that it's going to be most helpful and so it's just i get really excited about hearing what you're talking about because that does to me it makes so much sense on on your path, but if you don't mind sharing with me too, is, uh, without, and you can just wave this off if this is like any, any secret sauce, but, uh, do you, when you're working with new clients, right? Cause I think that's one of the hard parts with almost any consulting business is what's this relationship going to be like. Uh, but when you're bringing up, when you are starting to work with a, a new client, do you at all walk through like here here's where projects are going to feel rocky do you like do some kind of onboarding and wayfinding on uh here's where where you're going to question why we even w- partnered and then but you know i can point to other customers that are really happy but do you walk them through a journey because a lot of a lot of tech projects too are trying to really just uh wrestle ambiguity to the ground right and but even, even, even great projects start off with a lot of ambiguity. So I'm just kind of curious on how you work through that with new clients.
0: We have, we have learned a lot about how much work we have to do in education with clients and how important um, education and expectation setting are for people. Because we forget that, you know, we do this all day, every day. And so the, the stress that comes with it is, is expected and natural. But many of our clients haven't done this before. Or you know, if they have, it was five years ago and it was a terrible experience. They don't ever want to repeat it. You know, right.
1: so
0: um, so we're we're working really hard to try to manage that. And and in the beginning, we didn't realize that that was something we need to do. Today, one of my favorite things that we do is we show people a graph, and uh, you know, your listeners can't see this, but the it looks like a roller coaster, and it, the title of the graph is project timeline and emotions, and. We actually talk to people about, you know, you're going to feel a, a really high point when we first get started, and you're going to feel a really low point when you realize all the details we have to s- sort out. And then when we start coding, you're going to feel really great because we're finally moving forward. And then, you know, when you catch the first bug that made it to staging, you're going to hate us and <laughs> we're going to be back down. And, and just walking through that with them, um, you know, we've had clients that have said, "It's I, I'm in the trough, I'm in the trough, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is I it the trough the of despair? It's like, in, how, do you, how do you like that?
0: <laughs> yes, it's it's the trough of despair. And, <laughs> and, you know, I think that to some extent that's present in any business endeavor, right? But right. Um, we've, we've just found that it's comforting to people to at least know that it's normal to feel like this. You're going to have moments where you're elated and moments where you feel like, why did I start this? Um, and you'll get through it.
1: Yeah, I know. uh, Somebody uh, gave me advice one time about uh, early consulting projects that sometimes it feels like the first uh, three quarters of the project is trying not to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) And and then when you make it through, it's, you know, everybody can, everybody can look back and wasn't that funny when we were so angry and (laughs) worried about this. Uh, And then And then those great clients too where where you have that great relationship too it's like okay what's what's the next project Mm -hmm. so what are the types of projects that uh, you're working on uh these days
0: so we do a lot of what i would call heavy duty software so um you know of course we try to make it feel light on the front end but um our our strength is in those uh more intensive software projects We do a fair amount of B2B just because a lot of times there's a a big opportunity in that space um, because you have a a well-defined process typically um, and often a a process that has some gaps in it, whether that's communication gaps or or gaps where things aren't happening. Um, We do mobile apps as well as web-based software solutions. So kind of a, a mix of the two and you know, most things these days have to have some kind of mobile component because that's that's just the world we live in.
1: Right, right. Thank you. Uh, so you started your business at the beginning of the Great Recession. Uh, and uh, how, how have things been the past year just with pandemic and a lot of business uncertainty?
0: It's been all over the place. Um, we have, we've worked with and continue to work with clients who are... Um, busier because of the pandemic. I don't know that I would say anyone is better off, but certainly, you know, clients in certain spaces, uh, healthcare, that sort of thing are, are busier because of the pandemic. And so we had some clients with some increased needs um, and increased needs that showed up, you know, basically overnight (laughs) that needed responded to, you know, we've had some clients who have experienced some challenges and had to pull back. Um, For us overall, I would say the, the first 10 months of 2020 felt like people were just in a holding pattern waiting to see what happened. Um, and then toward the end of 2020, we started to get people interested in new projects and thinking more forward. Um, so it's, it's almost like I don't know if it was the vaccine news or what but people started to see a way out and consider investing in the future so. thank you yeah (laughs) yes (laughs)
1: no that's great i and i want to want to ask you a little bit too about your just more your business journey right now too just as a as a business leader uh kind of uh what just we'll do a compare and contrast to to when you said you were you were cocky you got you got the vista print navy blue ready ready to roll where you're at today what might be the difference between what gets you out of bed every day And then what keeps you up at night?
0: Well, when I started, um, I, you know, I started like many entrepreneurs do because there was a thing I liked doing and that thing I liked doing at the time was programming. And so I think to some extent that that was what got me out of the, out of bed in the morning and, and being able to create something helpful for a small business specifically with that programming. But I definitely enjoyed the act of figuring out a tricky Technological problem, um, you know, in service of that client. And today, I probably haven't written code in eight years, and or at least not in a meaningful way. And and so there was definitely some adjustment to be had there in terms of what do I consider to be me providing value, right? You know, and how do I measure myself at the end of the day? Um, but you know, if you look at the core of that, the core of that is still doing something that helps people. So my role in that has shifted, but the overall purpose is the same. Um, as far as what keeps me up at night, that's pretty different too, because what ke- kept me up at night used to be, oh, how am I gonna figure out how to do you know, this tricky thing? And now I, I think at some point you develop some confidence after a few hundred or thousand or however many tricky problems that they're, they're all gonna get solved one way or another. Um, but what keeps me up at night is more, you know, the big questions of, um, you know, I'm responsible for multiple families, livelihoods and, um, uh, multiple businesses, livelihoods, you know, in terms of the products we create. And so that sense of responsibility toward our clients and our employees, is probably what keeps me up at night.
1: Thank you. Uh, we talked about teams a little bit in collaboration. How do you, um, either within your organization, within your client organizations, uh, but for listeners, what are, what are some tips you have to help promote positive collaboration, positive team dynamics?
0: So sometimes I tell people that we are technology therapists because a lot of times we get brought into situations where there are some uh, competing viewpoints within a client organization about which features ought to be prioritized, how things should be done. And I think that those, those are best solved if we remember a couple of things. And, and one is that you know, whatever that viewpoint is that we're dreading hearing, you know whether it's Bob from accounting who hates everything, or you know, if it's our, our, our friend over in sales that we feel like promises too much and all of that, whatever that viewpoint is that we don't wanna hear is probably the one that we most need to hear and hear it early. You know, So trying to remember that, that, that whatever that problem is that that person's going to bring up, it's gotta be solved. And the earlier we deal with it, the better. Um, and then the second thing I think is just trying to stay curious and, and recognize that these things aren't threats to us. They're all ideas that are being presented so that we can arrive at the best conclusion. And that's really hard when we've already pre-committed in our mind to what the best solution is for us. So if yeah. we can st- stay out of that pre-commitment and stay in that curiosity, it, it goes a lot better.
1: Thanks. And when the one of the things that you said too about that problem-solving you know, earlier, you one of my thoughts is you have to address those problems. And uh, my my belief is those problems uh, get bigger and gain interest uh, throughout the life of a project. So if you don't deal with it now, it might be bigger and scarier down the road. And Having that, uh, I don't know, a, 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 both an optimistic view, but a very like frank kind of radical candor. Let's just throw it on the table. Here's what we're dealing with and getting there. But I, I do really appreciate you talking about getting to those those scary problems early. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes when they're laid out, they're not nearly as as scary once there's discussion about it.
0: I mean there's there's an element to it that's like a a marriage or an interpersonal relationship right where you could end up having an argument that's not about what the argument's about. <laughs> and if you can if you can get to what is that root thing, you know, and a lot of times the root thing is that somebody's afraid that their job's going to get harder, which is a valid thing to be concerned about and everyone in the room needs to hear that and know that, right?
1: Yeah. But
0: for some reason, people often feel like they're not empowered to say that, and so what you get instead are, are all of these uh, tense discussions of you know why it shouldn't be this way or should be this way, and if we could just lay it out on the table that you know this person doesn't have ten extra hours a week to deal with whatever it is, we could get somewhere, and so. It's just trying to facilitate that uh, that safe space, I guess, for people to be open about, you know, it's, it's okay to talk about how this affects you. Yeah, <laughs> That's why you're here, you're a stakeholder. So tell us about how this affects you.
1: And one of my perceptions, so I, I'm, I'm curious uh, on, on your thoughts here, uh, if I'm on target or off target, but I feel like uh, a lot of times technology projects inside an organization sometimes feel like, uh, automation efficiency so also people worried that maybe they lose their job but also some like oh my gosh if it does that <laughs> uh, I won't have a job but that, that there are people who made made a career on uh, basically being a gap filler on processes in an organization and and not a I don't at all want to discount what they're feeling right because that is their reality but you know healthy ways that well if if they if if they didn't have to do that, what else they might be able to do on the positive side. But I've seen so many people that are just scared too, that they, they built an identity in a company and it's either going to shake that identity or even worse, it feels like, I don't know, almost at a base Maslow level is that they're going to, they're going to lose their ability to provide food and shelter for themselves. Uh, and so I don't, uh and and this might be me projecting <laughs> so so maybe this is podcast therapy but as I'm talking <laughs> talking to you like how do you how do you help people conf- confront that that fear like you said it, it's okay so that's one is acknowledging it but how do you help people walk through that uh, s- so that you can have kind of a healthy project or healthy team
0: yeah so I think it, it starts at the leadership level and I will tell you with all of the organizations we've worked with over the years, um, I would say 90% have no intention of staff reduction. And and sometimes they may. And that's important to get clear on, you know, for for their own organization, if that is their intent. But the vast majority of the time, I haven't heard that the intent is staff reduction. The intent is to free up these people who are doing tedious manual processes right. to do things that people are good at. And that's one thing that we try to emphasize with people is there are things computers are really, really good at, right? They're they're good at following rules and doing things repetitively without errors. Yep. And they will school a human every single time at doing the exact same thing over and over without variation, right? But there are also things that even with AI, people are still better at.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so typically what we're trying to do is free up the people to do the things that people are good at and let the computers do the things that computers are good at.
1: Yeah, I I had a manager too that in the was like if we can just get better at uh, in kind of crude language but let the computers do the shit work and mm-hmm. you know what what are the things where humans can accelerate, right? And and we I think sometimes we get those things confused as well. Like how how can we sort that <laughs> this, this this is not a human strength, but it's really good for the computer, right? right Uh, so what might be computational things and what might be more humanistic things so that we can uh, better align a team right just uh, Mm -hmm. in team sports right you can't have a basketball team that's five centers or five point guards and but the more that you're fluid and can have different different positions it gets better and sometimes I feel like uh, we get this perception that there's only one type uh, Mm -hmm. that's necessary and you know you had mentioned diversity earlier I mean and then diversity can take on multiple forms, right? Whether it's uh, our background, where we came from, our strengths. But I, I just sometimes I feel like there's so much more opportunity in business if we were just better brokers, like in a, in a marketplace of of strengths and needs, mm-hmm. and, and realigning and adjusting. So I don't, I don't know. That's kind of just ham-fisted statement, kind of question. But I don't know if you have a response to kind of that uh, just expanding a little bit too about that computer versus human.
0: Yeah, so in, when I get down to talking to the people who are actually doing the work, it's almost never the case that the part that they enjoy, the part that they feel really fulfilled by, the part that you know gets them out of bed in the morning is the tedious part that would be better done by a computer, right? Um, you know, and, and a classic example would be bookkeeping. We, there used to be actual humans that added big columns of numbers by hand. Right? and we don't do that anymore and we would never consider doing that anymore, right? But there are still people who are bookkeepers and accountants and, you know, CFOs and, and all of those positions related to it. They just don't have to sit there adding up the columns of numbers. Um, and and I think that that's a great insight into what we're really all trying to do. And, um, you know, my my other, Passion in school was economics, and so when I look at the workforce problems that we're experiencing right now, you know, we have a shortage of of workforce in the technology field, and a lot of it feels like a, a really painful, in a micro sense, um, problem where we we just need to realign some people who are doing some jobs that are being taken by computers to do the jobs that order around computers, you know, and. Right. Um, and and I don't mean to make light of that because it's not a fun thing on an individual level when yours is the job that's changing. But I also think it's full of opportunity to get people into positions that are more fulfilling, you know, better, better-paying jobs in many cases, um, you know, and, and jobs that can truly utilize their strengths.
1: Thank you. Uh, so you talked about economics as a as a passion, and that was just making me think too about. Uh, Where do you where do you get your energy today or what uh, what either energizes or re energizes you, Uh, you you talked about economics as a passion, but uh, when you when you're not when you're not focused exactly on the business what where are some some areas where you uh, find joy. I
0: think that it's important to have outlets uh, that are not directly related to making money because uh, the, the pressure to make money on something can kill some of the joy on it. And uh, <clears throat> so writing was that way for me and then I decided to write a book. So <laughs> there's another vehicle where you're, uh, you know, there's a market component to it and marketability. But um, recently I took up painting and I did it specifically because I thought it was important for me to learn to be comfortable not being good at something. Um, I had always been the person that I want to be good at something right away, or I might not stick with it. And, and that's a really limiting belief if you want to keep growing and keep learning. So um, I picked something that I knew I was not particularly good at, and, you know, decided that it, it would have to be fulfilling for the joy of doing it, not for the outcome. And so that's been a really fun journey for me.
1: And how long have you been painting?
0: Oh, gosh, I've always had an interest in it. Um, my family is uh, artistic. My dad went to design school at Iowa State. And uh, so I've always had an interest in that. But I think to some extent, I was I felt uh, overshadowed by more talented people. So uh, I, I think I've been seriously doing it or devoting good time to it for probably three years now.
1: So. Oh, that's great. One of the things I really, really appreciate about what you said is the intentionality behind picking something that you're you're not good at. And and to me to me and maybe filling in in some spaces inappropriately, but it it's you're picking something you're not so that you can grow. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was it wasn't just I'm going to do this thing that I'm already good at as an ego boost. I'm going to do this to to learn and grow and stretch myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and stretch myself in multiple ways, like building the skill is one thing. And, um, you know, there's a lot of crossover and creativity between technology and, and other creative forms. So I think there's, there's value in that in all sorts of ways. Plus it's just fun. Um, but the other side of that, I think is, is learning to be comfortable in the uncomfortable, you know, and, and learning that it's okay to do something that, that you don't have that immediate ego boost of, wow, I'm really good at this. Um, that was something that i needed to grow in
1: so have you now do you, do you show anybody your work or is it just more your kind of solo journey i'm just kind of curious about the output like if you're comfortable showing people and it and it this is this is not a visual podcast so don't worry we, <laughs>
0: but,
1: but i, I was no just pressure. kind of curious if you now do you start doing anything else like uh, you know do you have goals like to show show the work or give it as gifts or i don't know have a have a have your own show at a gallery someday
0: yeah. Um, I, I do, there are certainly things I paint that no one ever sees. <laughs> um, but I do show, a, a number of the things that I paint and I've sold some pieces that I've painted. Um, I don't know that I would ever want to make that a primary career focus. I, I think I want to keep the focus of it. You know, this is primarily for me as an outlet and a growth opportunity. And if someone likes it, they can buy it, but
1: <laughs> well, that's great. And so, uh, I love hearing that it was. it's three or more years in the making because part, part of my mental model was maybe this was something just during pandemic to, to do, but that you, this was something you were exploring before then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, I've always known that I needed opportunities to be creative that uh, weren't to please a specific person.
1: Tell me, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit more about that.
0: I think that in lots of aspects of life, we have this this little voice in our head that we're trying to please. And and sometimes that's a very direct voice, like when we're doing work for a client and we're trying to please that client. Right. And that's an obvious one. But many of us also have this little little voice in the back of our minds that when we're maybe about to take a risk or about to do something different from what we would normally do this little voice pops up and it might be a parent, it might be a mentor, it might be the person we don't like who does the same career we do. And, but we're hearing that person's voice and how they would react to it. Um, and you know what I've learned is that most of the time if I'm gonna do something interesting, I, I have to learn to turn off that voice and not be guided by that voice. And so I think there's something really powerful about giving yourself space where there is no voice right? This is just for me. And, and there's no one to please with it.
1: I, I love it as, as kind of a, uh, anxious Midwesterner. i mean, I, the, (laughs) the, for me, the notion of, uh, not only pleasing other people, but, uh, uh, I, I think one of the most powerful voices I, I hear quite often is my own internal critic, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And like, so how do you get, yeah. So I really appreciate trying to get to a space where, where maybe you can, uh, quiet them down or keep them occupied on something else while you, (laughs) while you grow and learn new skills.
0: Yeah. Go organize the spice rack, critical voice. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, one, one of the things to, from my, from my perspective, so this is this coming at it from an innovation and design perspective, but hearing you talk about painting and other, other skills is I'm a firm believer that as people grow, and especially as we, we look at complex problems and solving problems, learning other systems and how other systems behave just starts to give you a, a, a much broader toolkit or, or just building on kind of your painting, you know, a, a broader palette of things that you can use and do. Um, so I, I think sometimes we get so stuck in a way of doing things, a system, and when that system starts to shift, right, it, because of complex world around us sometimes we get stuck and we don't have new tools that could maybe quickly solve that or at least shed some light so uh, that's i just i i love when i hear about people picking up new hobbies and, and skills and really kind of learning a system and so uh could be you, you could deflate this right away but uh in your exploration of painting, has it has it provided any new, like uh, maybe tools or insights or ways of looking at problems? Now that you can say, oh, if you know, this is a this is a framing issue, this is a composition problem, uh, this is a lighting issue. I is there any cross pollinization between uh, some of your new hobbies and and your current uh, business environment?
0: Sure. Um, and you don't have so. to please me. No, no, no. <laughs> I. I... There absolutely is. I think that it's interesting. If the the further out you zoom, the more parallels there are between the way different systems work. So you know, if you look at a painting, one of the, the aspects of that is the color scheme. And there's a, and one of the things that we do when we solve problems is we learn patterns for solving problems, right? So most of us are not approaching that problem with a completely blank canvas, even if we think we are. Um, in the back of our mind, there are all these tools we've gathered, which are patterns for solving problems that we've seen before. So the same thing is true with a color scheme. There are some popular patterns for solving the problem of what's a color scheme that looks good. There's a complementary color scheme, which is colors that are opposite each other. There's an analogous color scheme, which is colors that are close to each other on the color wheel. Right? There's a split complementary color scheme. So there are these these groupings and these patterns. You know, the the same types of things are true if we think about how are we going to lay out a system? You know, oftentimes we will put the things that are related to each other close to each other, and that's a very popular way of doing things. But sometimes two things um, oppose each other. And so you want to think about, you know, if if revenues and expenses are important things to think about because they go hand in hand, then maybe we wanna show revenues and expenses next to each other so you can compare them. Right. That type of thing, yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. Uh, and just a little bit more on the the art front, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Scappaticci, he went to college as an artist, right? Went to art school and uh, co-founded a company that does uh, basically high-tech prototyping and prototyping and design at scale. And what one of the things I found really interesting was when he and his, his co-founders approached this, they, they approached it from a studio artist perspective that uh, technology, code. Those are materials. And just like you would in uh, an artistic studio, you bang on it, you see what it what it can resist, uh, what it's weak to and and almost just bringing an an art mentality uh, into into the digital space was really interesting to not be overwhelmed by it. But what if what if you did think of it as a a material and a medium? How you know, what might our experiments look like? So I just I I get excited about those those kind of cross pollinating uh, systems. But enough about me. I keep talking about this uh, I, and I apologize. I want to talk a, a little bit to, for you. I just, I've just i loved your perspectives that you've been sharing. Uh, and one of the things I, I try to dig into with guests is the notion of advice where they've either uh, received good advice or uh, you, you use the term cocky earlier. Sometimes in our, our younger self, we're so cocky that we, we're dismissive of stuff. And as we get older, we're like, oh, wow, there was a lot of wisdom packed in there or you know from the austin cleon view of the world still like an artist when we give advice we're just talking to our younger self so i don't know for you what's good advice you've received and and maybe it's aged well or advice that you wish you would have received uh earlier in your journey
0: yeah i think one of the biggest things that's continued and i could give this advice to myself today sitting here is that whatever you're afraid of is the thing you need to dig into next and when I feel those fears coming up in, in little ways, in big ways, you know, I, I used to not understand insurance and I had a fear about insurance. Well, guess what? I needed more insurance. Um, <laughs> you know, I, there, there are all sorts of, I, I had fears around money and, and I needed to get serious about learning how cash flow worked and, and managing that. Um, you know, I had fears around clients and, and working with the right clients and I just needed to get serious about understanding what was the right client for us and being willing to say no when it wasn't. Um, but all of those things, you know, when you, when you catch that, that feeling that comes up and I feel like it's a chest feeling, you know, it's, it's this tightness right in your, in your chest around your heart. And when you start to feel that feeling, that fear is teaching you something. And it's, it's raising a flag of here's something that you need to look at, um, because you're going to be able to grow from it. You're going to be able to solve it and, and get past it and be stronger for it.
1: So do you do you feel like you've always been wired that way or was that something you kind of uh, picked up on a little bit later is when you have that uh-oh feeling that that's, that's something that diver- deserves investigation? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious if that was learned or maybe earlier in your life you were, okay, this is something, I don't want to be scared of this. So I'm just going to dig in.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what I noticed is that the same, there there would be a pattern of the same Bad things befalling me, right? And I, how can this keep happening to me? You know, how can I keep winding up in these situations? Well, it's very obvious how I keep winding up in these situations. I am not dealing with whatever blind spot I need to deal with to stop ending up in these situations. You know, and I think that that's incredibly common. That's one reason that businesses bring in outside consultants, right? Is because they've got blind spots and they need someone to make them deal with them. Um, you know, it's it's the same thing for each of us individually, but it's much harder because t- it's much harder to see your own blind spot. But if you can use that fear as that kind of warning system of you know this might be a blind spot that you should investigate, I think that's a really helpful tool.
1: Thank you. I love I love that. Um... And maybe we should have dug into this a little bit earlier, but I do, I know we, we talked about maybe when you started your career, you weren't fitting the, the stereotypical mold of a technologist. And, um, just, can you share, uh, just good, good reasons, uh, why we, we need to help diversify technology, you know, that it, it's almost stereotypically like some type of, uh, almost like in my mind, it's like some white coder bro space, right? And that, the, uh, but I know there's a lot of research on improved teams from diversity, but what are the things that in your mind, what we can do to help improve the diversity of the technology landscape?
0: So I th- think that there are a couple of things. I don't know anyone, myself included, who wants their value to be the fact that they are the diverse person right? So um, no one that's not what anyone wants to be valued for, but what people do appreciate being valued for their insights and their viewpoints. And what I've appreciated, you know, being in this career for quite a while now, is that the more diverse the thinking is on the team, the faster you will get to the right answer. Um, and, and it'll be a little messy getting there, right? It'll feel very chaotic for a minute, and then it'll all come together. And we just had a moment in our team over slack today where that happened and we had four different people coming at it from four different perspectives and all of a sudden it just all kind of congealed into yep this is how it needs to go and had we not had those four different perspectives coming at it we probably would have tried something gotten a ways down the road and realized that it was flawed and had to start over um, so as far as how to attract people i think that the I don't know that the answer is, is waving a flag and saying we need more women in tech, we need my, more minorities in tech, which is true, we do, but it's not a great sales pitch to <laughs> the women and minorities. Um, but I think what we can do is make sure that when they get there that the environment is inviting and respectful and values different perspectives and different viewpoints instead of trying to silence something that doesn't fit the mold. Um, and, and then I think there's, there's an element of being intentional about our hiring practices, intentional about our pay practices to try to defeat the bias that's inevitably going to try to sneak into the process.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. By chance, did you ever hear the story about, uh, Malcolm Gladwell told it, I think it was the Toronto uh, Orchestra. No. And they changed their hiring practice by making people perform behind a screen.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Uh, and then they felt the talent just, but before they were just going with people that looked like them. So it was traditionally white, traditionally male, right? But, and when they, when they started having performers behind a screen where, where uh, race and gender weren't the first things in the room, uh, mm-hmm. it changed the output. Uh, yeah. Just thought, you know, to your point, too, the different perspectives, we're seeing that also HBR had a piece a couple of years ago about, uh. Uh, more diverse companies uh, are more innovative and another another one they had on teams was the more cognitively diverse your team the faster they solve problems
0: right right yeah I mean the science is pretty irrefutable on it Um, I I think it's the implementation where people trip all over themselves
1: yeah well Aaron it has been an absolute honor to have you on the show I really appreciated the the conversation uh, and uh we will make sure that we have also in the the episode description have uh have links to the the book and to your 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 company but uh are there other ways that, that you would recommend that people get in touch with you either from uh in need of technology side or you as a an author
0: um yeah our company website is a great way to get in touch with us from the company side and the email address is right on there so you don't even have to fill out a contact form just direct access <laughs> Um, and on my website as well, you can uh, contact me for, about my writing or speaking if if you want to get in touch with me there.
1: That's great. Aaron. thanks again for joining me on, on the podcast. It was a pleasure getting the opportunity to speak with you.
0: Thanks a lot, Matt. I really enjoyed it.